Hi, and welcome to Fashion Talks, the podcast about observing the world through the lens of fashion. I'm your host, Donna Bishop. Hello, hello. Thank you so much for being here. I hope that you are doing well. Today, I will be speaking with 2023 CAFA Fashion Innovation Award winner, David Cash, founder of Cash Labs. We are talking AI, VR, Web3. I know I say this a lot, but you are going to want to grab a pen. The advice he gives at the end of the conversation is really, really important. Let's get right to it. I am so happy to have you here today. Oh, it's such a pleasure, Donna. Thank you for having me. Well, we are going to be talking about AI and Web3 and all kinds of really, you know, some nascent, some exciting, all of it incredibly timely tech that you are on the like precipice and the pulse and have the heartbeat of. But before we get into it, share Cash Labs, how you found yourself in this place. Give give us a little bit of a context for how we're going to be talking today. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. There we go. <laughs> absolutely. Thank you so much again for having me. I'm really excited to dive in on this. Um, first of all, I just always want to say when we're bringing up these conversations, especially in this context, we're here for the love of fashion. You know, we're we're going through all of these hurdles and jumping through all these hoops and learning about all these things um, so that we can con- continue to enjoy and consume fashion, culture, art, technology um, to the extent that we can um, in our modern day and age. So that's what I always like to start with. Um, so Cash Labs is an agency that I have been working on. It's my it's my baby. Um, I'm the founder. I'm the managing director. Um, and I've been working on it for about two and a half years now. Um, it's very young. Um, I've been in the entertainment industry my entire life. So I was a child actor. I did that for 12 years. I ran a traditional production company here in Toronto for about seven years, David Cash Studios. As you can tell, I'm very creative with the naming of my uh, companies. Um, it's important to be clear where the origins right, exactly, come from. Exactly. <laughs> um, so did a lot of traditional work, worked on several TV shows, worked on a lot of music videos in the uh, music industry, entertainment industry more traditionally um, for seven years, like I mentioned. And then um, it was during the pandemic um, that I went down a bit of a rabbit hole. I was actually um, going down my second academic path. I decided to go back to school and, and uh, pursue a master's degree in Italy of all places. Um, and I was in lockdown and I was really, you know, um, spending a ton of time online. And it's when I, you know, came across um, what an NFT was for the first time. And, you know, that may be a foreign word for some people or something that you've seen in media and you might be confused by, or you might understand. Um, but for me, what that meant was it was a way for me to commercialize and contextualize the creative work that I was doing um, in a way that I hadn't before. You know, I'd definitely been creating photography. I'd been creating videos. I would put those on YouTube. I would put those on Facebook. I would put those on Instagram. Um, but I would never own the distribution platform because I wasn't, a, I wasn't a production company big enough to own my own distribution. You know, that was reserved for the alliances of the world and, you know, the, the Warner Brothers of the world to actually own their own distribution. So that was the first thing that really appealed to me was the idea that I could own my own imagery and sell it to somebody and then they could own it. Like that actual idea of ownership of um, digital assets, because I was principally working with photography, digital photography, um, and video. So that's really what I started falling in love with. Um, I ended up pursuing that really hardcore, um, was researching NFTs and and how to use NFTs and how could they be used and what is this um, for about a year. And I ended up releasing a master's thesis on the topic um, at the end of my, of my degree. Um, and I put that out on the internet and I went on vacation and I came back and a whole bunch of people had emailed me asking me questions about an NFT was and how they could use it for their business. Um, so that's how I started Cash Labs. Um, Cash Labs definitely started out of, you know, a bunch of questions just being directed my way. Um, I had a, a pretty, um, you know, robust production background and commercial production background. And then I also had a bunch of very 
um, niche knowledge on applications of this new technology, which was weird for me to be because I was always a creative director. I was always a director. I was always, you know, the creative mind. Uh, but this allowed me to take the, that skill set that I had developed and use it in a very different way. Um, so instead of, you know, people asking me to produce a music video for them, they were saying, hey, I have this art collection coming up. How could I roll it out in a really unique way using all these new technologies? Like, how could I use this to um, benefit myself commercially? You know, make it more of a PR push. How can I make this more of a, a splash, a viral moment? You know, all of these different things. And so over the past two and a half years, as I mentioned, um, we've produced over 200 different projects for over 200 different brands, um, brands, individuals, artists, whatever you'd like to call them. Um, that very much initially started by us uh, producing for a lot of the people who would be called um, big NFT artists, whatever that means for different people, you know, names that you may have heard of, but probably haven't, you know, like Krista Kim or Justin Aversano or Don Diablo. And um, we started working with these types of people, helping them produce um, projects, sell projects, create uh, content, um, create NFT drops, um, create IRL events, um, all sorts of things that were necessary to their processes. Um, and then that very quickly developed, you know, this, this space is very serendipitous and this technology is very new. So people would find out about the things that we were doing and very quickly that developed to us doing projects with people, you know, kind of a big state step up like Paris Hilton or French Montana or Dead Mouse and doing projects with these types of, you know, um, bigger names and more mainstream names. And then we helped, you know, companies like the NBA kind of create some of their first official um, NFT drops and things just really, you know, snowballed and and uh, I like to say I was drinking from the fire hose for about two years. Um, and then fall of 2021 was the first time that um, Decentraland, which is a virtual world platform, a metaverse platform, um, who I had activated with many times before. We did stuff with many of the names that I mentioned and um, Decentraland in the past. I curated events for them, um, produced events on their platform. Think of it as any gaming platform that you might be familiar with. Um, or your kids might be familiar with. Um, and they basically came to me and they said, what would a, like, you know, we've produced art events together, we've produced music events together, what would a fashion event look like um, in the metaverse? And I left that breakfast, I was in, we were in Miami for our Basel actually, and I left that breakfast and we left that breakfast with this idea of metaverse fashion week. And we we're gonna create this event and we're gonna bring brands together and we're gonna bring all the leading voices in digital fashion that I had come to meet throughout the past uh, year and a half. And we're gonna bring them all together for an event uh, in Decentraland. And um, we did that, it took about, three, four months of, you know, kind of very intense planning. And we brought in a bunch of people who sponsored and we started getting bigger and bigger brands to be interested. And um, eventually brands like Dolce & Gabbana and Etro and Ali Saab were interested in joining. Um, that was through this connection we have with Vogue Arabia. And there were all these interesting things starting to happen. Um, and then next thing I know, I have like uh, an email from uh, Decentraland's publicist being like Vanessa Friedman from the New York Times wants to talk to you. I'm like, what? Um, and so that whole thing snowballed and the event went very well. It's, it's kind of like the first metaverse fashion event to happen. Um, and we produced this event and over a hundred thousand people attended it live. Um, and over 1.2 billion people saw this event or experienced this event, um, through media, uh, over 800 pieces of media and over a dozen different languages, um, which had never really been done before. Um, and there was a lot of positive in this whole thing and a lot of negative, I'd say as well, because there were a lot of great learning uh, experiences and opportunities. Um, I'd say we shifted how our agency runs quite a bit from this event because we saw brands activate in a way that was catering to the people who were already on the platform that we were activating in. And then we also saw brands activating in a way that was true to their consumers, um, selling them things that they already wanted, um, uh, you know, sharing with them narratives in a new way that were already consistent with their beliefs and their values and the reason why they already shop at that brand. So like we did an activation for Estee Lauder 
um, at this first Metaverse Fashion Week. And, and I still, even though this was something we actually built in a very condensed period of time, it was one of the last activations that we, we ourselves produced, Cash Labs produced. Um, and, but it was one of the most successful use cases because we really did cater to people who really loved buying their most successful product. Um, we put out comms in over a dozen different languages, um, and we spoke to their consumers and their consumers actually were the ones who participated in this activation. So I'm saying all this to say, we very much shifted our business model since that first Metaverse Fashion Week. Uh, we've been working very hard to try to work with these types of brands um, who have consumers' attention, who have people's attention, not just in a purely commercial manner, but because if we want to integrate these types of technologies like NFTs, like the metaverse, like you mentioned, AI, um, into people's lives in a way that's not alienating, we have to do so through uh, shared touch points. And the biggest shared touch points today, from my perspective, are the brands and the products and the um, names that we interact with and we trust on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, same reason you're going to buy Colgate toothpaste instead of some other toothpaste, because you've trusted it and it's being a part of your life. So um, we're really, as an agency, as Cash Labs, what we're really focused on doing is being what we call a communication innovation agency. So we work with these types of brands. And over the past year and a half, we've been very successful uh, working with some of the largest brands in the world, a lot of the, the top 10 Fortune 500 um, companies that you might be familiar with, um, a lot of the big fashion brands, big consumer labels. Um, and we're working with them often on multi-month, if not multi-year scopes, where we take their goals, you know, what are the problems that they're trying to solve as a company, as an institution, as a brand, and how do we solve those problems using new technologies? Um, because they develop every day. And it's, it's constantly going to be a problem that these brands have. But that's really how we've moved from uh, NFT master, I guess, from production and NFT master's thesis to what Cash Labs is today. So there was my long, lengthy intro. <laughs> no, no, it's great. And so many things came to mind for me as you were speaking. Um, one of them is the idea of using, you know, NFTs as a way or technology really in general to contextualize and commercialize content, products, things kind of blew my mind a little bit because what it then made me think was that what I hear you saying is that technology is just a tool. Yes. It is also an environment. It's also a language. It's also a skill. And I think that is a really important pivot in terms of how we think about tech. Like it is no longer just this like two-dimensional relationship we have with the screen. It is far more robust than that. And and that is only going to expand. And the work you're doing is really taking that mindset and pushing it in ways that like, you know, it's great to work with big brands because they have the big money so they can do big experiments and try big new things. So I want to dig into kind of some of the um, specifics of some of those projects a little bit just to help us visualize, like, what does Metaverse Fashion Week look like? Like I understand a fashion week and a runway show and, and, and I have a working understanding of the metaverse. How do you describe that? Because I think that's part of why it's important for people who work in fashion to be paying attention to this kind of work, because it's only going to be a space that continues to become more relevant. Uh, I can't tell you how on the nose you are, by the way, first of all, thank you for, for being so uh, <laughs> on point. I think one thing that you said that I just want to echo is that technology should and can be used as a tool. Um, and I think that's, that's a big part of our ethos. That's a big part of what I stand for and what Cash Lab stands, stands for, especially when we're coming from a consumer point of view. Because um, once it comes down from a brand to a consumer, things should already be thought out. And I think one of the big challenges with a lot of the adoptions of a lot of these new technologies, and I am going to get to your question, but uh, I think one of the big challenges with a lot of the adoptions of these new technologies is we're asking a lot of a consumer. 
I think one of the reasons that NFTs didn't click on a consumer level when they were initially, you know, popularized is because there was no effort being made by brands or the people creating these pieces of content to actually simplify the process. There was a lot of effort being made to educate and lecture <laughs> and, you know, uh, intellectualize um, this process for people, but there was no real effort made to simplify the process for people. And I think that's one of the biggest issues. Um, if we can break technology down from a huge conceptual idea to very practical, um, you know, use cases, tools, whatever you want to call it, um, it's a lot easier for us to understand. And it's a lot easier for us to use these technologies as tools, instead of going back to that same example, because I always use it as a kind of grounding point, instead of letting these entities like Meta, Facebook, um, like, you know, these larger entities that kind of, you know, purvey and own the space. Um, we don't want them to own our data. We don't want them to control what we do in virtual spaces. And it really often comes down to that. And that's one of the big ethos differences between this kind of web two world that we're moving from in this web three world um, that we're, you know, blossoming into where we have. So what is web three? Like, cause I know yeah. that's going to be important. So let's just for, for the people, me who yeah. know it's important. How do you help me understand what web three is? So, so this is actually a good segue because we're going to go into this idea of the metaverse and game worlds, and this is all very relevant to this. So um, when we're looking at the transition of the internet, um, the initial internet, Web 1, was a very one-dimensional web. You'll, you probably remember, I remember, you know, there were, there were no videos, you know, there were no rich text links. You basically just had words on a screen and you could read the words and then you can go to other places and read more words. You could send words to each other. Um, eventually that developed into a rich text internet and eventually that developed into uh, an internet with images and videos and links and uh, interactivity. Um, and that slowly evolved into web two, which was an internet where we could actually interact with things and we could share things with people. Um, social networks were developed, which was like the kind of like core part of web two, um, which was like, we have these corralling factors and these um, you know sites and these um, ecosystems where we can connect with each other, but they're all owned by someone, you know, Amazon, Yahoo, uh, Facebook, uh, Instagram, uh, Snapchat, whatever the case is, um, somebody has to control this ecosystem in order for it to function. Um, web3, there's an ethos of Web3, and then there's a very practical side of Web3. So I'll, I'll mention okay. both. On an ethos level, I think the biggest shift for web uh, towards Web3, which I was initially very um, attracted to, was this idea of moving away from the controlled internet. Um, web3 is very much um, supported by blockchain technology. The reason that Web3 exists is because the blockchain was developed and we were able to um, decentralize ownership of data, if we're thinking. And those, that's also, that's the problem is a lot of the terms to describe these things are big and scary and annoying, like decentralized data. What is that? Why do I need to decentralize my data? Um, and the problem is that's to the advantage of these big brands, these Facebooks, um, these Googles, these Amazons, because they understand that it's complicated and they understand that it's a little bit overly intellectual and they monopolize it. And that's the kind of world that we're living in. So um, we're moving out of this controlled internet to an internet where we have a blockchain and a blockchain is essentially just a decentralized way of storing information. Um, and anybody can store anything on the blockchain and nobody necessarily owns it. The first blockchain that most people have heard of is Bitcoin. Um, well, it's not the first blockchain, but it's the most popular blockchain. It's the first popular it, cer blockchain. it certainly has the most uh, kind of mainstream. Oh, yes, I've yeah. heard of Bitcoin. But, right, right. But when, when we're talking about Web3, you don't even need to think about Bitcoin because really all you need to understand is that there is a secure means of storing whatever information you're putting online. So the biggest blockchain nowadays is Ethereum. Most people have heard of Ethereum. And the thing that I like to mention, which is kind of like, counterculture in the Web3 space. People don't like to talk about this, but over 50% of Ethereum is hosted on AWS servers, on Amazon servers. So any website that you go on on a day-to-day -day basis is hosted, for the most part, on AWS or Google servers. Any website that you go on today, most likely, 
So the fact that over 50% of Ethereum, the biggest blockchain, the most used blockchain in this ecosystem is hosted 51% or 50.5%, whatever it is, I don't know the exact number, um, on AWS means that one, it's under the same storage system. And two, it's 50% more secure than anything else stored on AWS because the other 50% is decentralized, meaning that if AWS goes down tomorrow, all that information won't go away because it's being stored on another 50% of additional decentralized servers. So just inherently in terms of like a high level, this is going way too technical to be perfectly honest. No, but you know what? It's clear because it's like, it's like. If Christopher Columbus is like heading out across the ocean, the servers are the land. Like he's hit actual land. The land is solid. He doesn't know where he's going, but there is he's he's not stepping out onto like the ether off the end of the earth. Like he's right. the the servers are the continents that people explore and move around on. You're you're experiencing them every day today. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Um, but then just to go back on like the big picture of what Web3 is, so really Web3 started with this. It's this decentralized internet. It's the ability to move an internet past centralized storage places like Facebook, Instagram, et cetera, and move it to a more decentralized realm. It's also in the same way that Web2 went from social networks and also encapsulated, you know, the popularization of video sharing and live streaming and all these other things. Um, Web3 has also blossomed into a lot more than just decentralized networks. Um, Web3 is also now encompassing the idea, once we have decentralized networks, we can now build worlds and ecosystems that go outside of our traditional game worlds, which now there's a lot of blend between them. We'll talk about that a lot with Metaverse Fashion Week, but um, people can move outside of owned or walled gardens and move to decentralized or open gardens where you could essentially move between different worlds without being within without being in a closed ecosystem. So like if I go to Minecraft or if I go to Fortnite or if I go to Roblox or any of these games that um, most people listening to kids probably love, um, they can't leave that game. You know, they there's no there's 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 no edge of the border where they can exit yeah. that game and go into another game. It's a closed ecosystem. So the the metaverses or the virtual worlds that are moving into Web3 space are open ecosystems where you could bring assets in from outside or you could bring assets out. You could move from that metaverse world to a different metaverse world. So it's bringing this ethos into now immersive environments. And then there, there is a bit of a debate whether AI fits into this whole Web3 piece or if it's separate. But really what we're thinking about is a more immersive, a more involved and a more decentralized internet. Um, so when we're improving the internet, why not include the automation of uh, replicable tasks? Why don't we include the idea of the automation of anything that you would like? Because that has already been something that's been available to us um, via Web2 for quite some time. Now we're calling it AI. It's actually really funny because as a comms agency, as a com- as a communications agency, we've worked with a lot of bots and AI tech. And, and, and five years ago, people were just calling AI annoying bots that were DMing them on Instagram. It's the same thing. Um, so I think a lot of this is just a recontextualization once again. And when we look at Web3, really, it's just this next evolution of the internet. And it is complicated because every time the, the internet continues to evolve, it becomes more complicated. And if I was to do this whole spiel again, and maybe you even want to like move this around, I don't know, you tell me. Um, but I always like to contextualize all of this with one word, which is also a very scary word. But when you understand it, it makes all of this a little bit less scary, um, which is hypermodernity. It's this idea, hyper My postmodern heart is beating so fast and happily. <laughs> but as, as, a, as a concept, in which sounds like you already know, this, this describes the sensation that we've reached a point in history where technology is developing at a rate where we can no longer instantaneously or easily comprehend it. Um, and that's lovely because we're experiencing exponential growth. 
the good side of that means we're going to continue to have amazing technological, sociological growth. Medicine is going to continue to evolve exponentially. We're going to have amazing discoveries over the next 5, 10, 20 years. Very exciting. Um, The downside of that is if people are already finding a lot of this stuff difficult to understand, that is inherent. So first of all, don't feel bad (laughs) because, you know, not even a, what, 150 like, years ago, not even, like 120 years ago, you know, we went from a horse and buggy to a car. That was an easy gap for people to understand. Okay, now that cart has wheels and they kind of move on their own. Okay, okay, I can kind of, you know, I can wrap my head around that. Okay, but now we're going from, okay, I have a landline device attached to my, um, my you know, my house or my car. And the next thing I know, it's a little box that I can pick up and, and hold in my hand. The next thing I know, it's just a dot. And the next thing I know, I'm supposed to be interacting with a space around me with my hands. Like it's, it's a, they're huge logic leaps. And that's why it's easy for kids to understand all these things, but it's really difficult. Anybody over the age of, you know, as soon as our brains have stopped to develop, it's immediately going to become much harder for us to understand each of these big gaps. So anytime we're talking about web three, versus Web 2, the reason it seems so wild, and it seems like that can't all be part of Web 3, well, it can. It's because we've made an exponential technological leap. Um, so there's my, there's that spiel. Well, no, and that makes, I, I, I can totally visualize like the, the landscape that you're laying out before you now. And I can see like, you know, if this was a tech philosophy podcast, we'd be talking about the implications of medicine and finance and, and so, uh, you know, socioeconomic access and et cetera. But let's rein it in for our, our listeners and our, in our, in our, you know, fashion, entrepreneurial, you do a lot of work with the, you know, Metaverse Fashion Week is one of the big, you know, hooks that your hat gets hung on. Yes. What does the fashion world need to be thinking about as all of these changes begin to evolve? Because I can just hear a chorus of, of some, you know, designers and entrepreneurs and creators and artists thinking, I just do like, I just make the clothes, I just put on the makeup, I just take the photos. And and feeling a bit of tension about, is this something I need to be thinking about? Like, it's very cool, and I'm so happy it's here, but is it really relevant to my corner of the business? What would you say? I think it's a great question. I think it's a really important thing for us all to be talking about, because I firmly, personally believe um, that if people don't start to make some effort to have an understanding of what all of this looks like, especially for them, Um, I think this will affect everybody in different ways, depending on what industry you're in and depending on what you do. But for fashion designers specifically, for anybody creating um, content, um, if you look at how much the industry has shifted in the past year, two years, let alone five years, 10 years, um, I think it's really telling to see how the the fashion system doesn't stop for anybody. Um, You know, we've seen hugely significant brands um, fall out of relevance over really superficial things often. Um, and I think when we consider, and this is, this is really what I like to ground things in when we consider that today, um, 3 billion people today played a video game, um, every day, 3 billion, 3.04 billion people play video games. Most of them are young, but 3 billion people, um, 1.4 billion, 1.408 billion people every day interact with an AR app, um, principally TikTok, Instagram, or Snapchat, um, point. Oh, four, sorry, 1.408 billion people. So just between those two demographics alone, um, we're looking at over 50% of the world's population. Um, who, that's wild. Who, who today, when you put it in that context, that's wild. Yeah. And that's today. That's, we're not thinking about the future. We're thinking about today. And when we look at that, that means that not only did over 50% of the world's population interact with the digital world, over 50% of the world's population today interacted with digital fashion. They just didn't call it digital fashion. They called it a Snapchat filter 
or they called it a game skin, or they called it an avatar, whatever. Um, they're just calling it a different name. But when we go back to what it is, we're adorning our bodies with something that says something about us. And what is fashion? It brings it brings you back to some of these really core fundamental questions that we've all kind of asked in fashion school. And, you know, we have these philosophy classes, basically, like trying to conceptualize what is fashion. So how is what my character is wearing in a video game or what I'm wearing in AR in my Snapchat story any different than us picking out a, an outfit in a store and taking a picture of ourselves in the mirror? It's, it says the same thing about us. We're, we're expressing ourselves in a certain way. Um, the context has just shifted. So, um, and, and this is only, again, hypermodernity. This is only the tip of the iceberg. This is where we are today. If we look at what the next two to five years look like, and I, and I do mean two to five years, not 10 to 20 years, two to five years look like, we already know that Apple is releasing the Vision Pro headset um, this fall or early next year. Um, it may already be out when this podcast is out. I don't know. Um, we know that that's coming and, and that's going to be a mixed reality device. That's going to be an XR device, um, meaning that it's going to allow us to see our immediate environments around us. And then we're going to be able to superimpose digital things in that world. And we're going to be able, we're going to be able to interact with those digital items in our physical world around us when we're uh, perceiving the world through these glasses. So what that means is effectively, and, and this is just going to be the, the tip of the iceberg. Once that comes out, that's not even a consumer-centric device. That's a corporate device. That's meant for people to be building in this headset. Once that gets followed by the Google glasses or the meta glasses or whatever that looks like, once more companies are creating mixed reality devices, what that means is that this gaming world, which is already, again, 3 billion people, and the AR world, the 1.4 billion people, are going to blend. Those two worlds are going to come together because the virtual superimposed world of AR, which is already kind of an, an, an idea of what this uh, extended reality future is going to look like, is going to be blended with these really fully realized game worlds where we have already photorealism. You've seen some of these movies where they have uh, Unreal Engine 3D rendered people and like, Keanu Reeves looks almost exactly like he looks like in person. We are, we're already there in terms of the creative and in terms of the technology. We just haven't bridged any of those gaps yet. So when anytime I'm thinking about you know Metaverse Fashion Week, I think is more important this coming year than it has been ever. Because if we look at where metaverse, where digital fashion was when Metaverse Fashion Week started, yes, there were a lot of people playing in video games. Yes, there were a lot of people active in AR filters. I don't think it was the same amount that are active today, to be perfectly honest. But even if it was, um, people weren't necessarily ready to make that gap. Now that we already see what that very immediate future is going to look like in terms of technological devices and how we're going to start taking our currently application-based digital um, experience of the world where we have to experience something through a laptop or through a phone or through a VR headset, and we start superimposing that into our real world, all of this is going to seem a whole lot more real. So my challenge for anybody who's creating content today, but especially people who are creating digital fashion, because I really think this is going to be the, one of the first, most important and most pervasive um, first use cases of all of this, um, is start exploring the digital realm. I think you'd be surprised, honestly, Don, if you saw like in fashion school today, how many kids are using digital fashion programs to design their physical garments already. Like I know so many people, like even when I'm trying to onboard designers, I'm being like, oh, you should check out Clo 3D. Like you should try modeling a digital fashion piece. They're like, oh, it's exactly the same as this software I already use to do my CAD drawings. I'm like, oh, okay. And then I'm like, but you just press this button and then it exports as a piece of digital fashion instead of you cutting it, and making it. They're like, oh, and then you, but then you have different skills. You have to learn lighting. You have to learn the video format. 
but there's different people and there's, you know, instead of having seamstresses, now you can have digital ateliers, like the whole industry is going to shift. So I'm not saying that physical fashion is not going to be relevant. I think it always will. As long as we have bodies and as long as we're here, um, we're going to be wearing something on those bodies. I just think that, I don't think I'm, I'm fairly certain that this digital world, which already is pervasive enough that uh, over 50% of the world interacts with it on a daily basis is going to continue to exponentially grow. And that 50% in the next two to five years is probably going to go up to 70%, 80%, maybe even 90%. I'm not sure. I don't know. Um, well, because what I hear you saying, just to pause for a second, is our, our digital footprint, like the Donna Bishop that could exist in the digital world is only, is only going to be able to become a, a more fluid um, version of myself with the Donna Bishop in the real world. And I will want to make similar choices. Like the fact that there are choices for skins and games, whether it's like your like F1 skin when you're playing like, you know, that PlayStation game or any of the other kind of like more interesting skins. The fact that there are options to me means it's relevant. Like someone already knows that we want to represent ourselves digitally in a way that is creative and relevant and says something about ourselves, just like we would in the real world. And that that relationship is only going to continue to expand and grow, which means to me, the things that we can now do for free are going to become commercialized as this becomes a more robust landscape that more and more of the, you know, the already 50% of the population, as you say, is interacting with. And I would say, you know, there is a portion of that 50% of the population that is going to, you know, like, I am not going to be as active in web three technology as my kids are. Right. So that that's only going to continue to grow. Well, I think you're not right now because I think one of the biggest shifts that we're seeing happen actively right now, and, and I'm pretty, I'm quite privy to this because I have the pleasure of working with a lot of these big consumer brands. Most of them are working on projects that have not seen the light of day yet or are multi-year projects that are, you know, very much NDA'd and hidden and all these things. Um, but once we start having the consumer layer of technology shift, so like once the, the stores that we go to every single day, the grocery stores we go to every single day, um, the the iPhone apps that we use every single day, start to adopt these technologies in ways that, again, don't ask anything of us, that's when we're going to actually start to see mainstream adoption of these technologies. So just to go back to this idea of Web3, um, Web3 is very conceptual when you think about it intellectually. Similarly, Web2 and the internet as a whole is very conceptual when you think about it academically. If you actually want to break things down on a technical level, I'm not even the one to talk to. You have to talk to me. Yeah, we're just going to stop that right there. <laughs> it's, it's, it's very technical. But when you start thinking of how the internet is used and you start thinking about social media and you start thinking about, you know, specific apps and applications, that's when you start going on a more consumer level. So I think Web3 as a concept is way too heady for any individual consumer or person um, to dive into unless they either want to pursue a PhD or they want to be a developer or they really want to develop virtual worlds and they want a deeper understanding. They want to be a consultant. Like unless you want a technical understanding, you don't need a technical understanding to the same extent that you don't need a technical understanding of iOS cloud computing devices to use an iPhone. Um, in the next year to three years, again, I like to put like general timelines on this, um, we are going to see applications of Web3 technologies, meaning like, decentralized storage, um, more access to virtual worlds, more open access to virtual worlds, games opening their closed gates and you know bridging these gaps. 
as seamless integrations. You're never going to have to make a crypto wallet to be able to own an asset. They're just going to do it for you the same way that everything's done right now. Like, you know, when I, when I buy something on Expedia, like when I buy a trip on Expedia, I don't know how many backend processes are going on to book the ticket, do the thing, go through the pro like, but we don't need to know the consumer doesn't actually need to know. Um, and that's the biggest shift that I think is going to happen over the next year. So I actually think you will be interacting with Web3 um, technologies and in Web3 context as much as your kids, but in very different ways. That makes total sense. Yeah. So let's bring it back to Metaverse Fashion Week, because I think that's kind of a cool case study to sort of, you know, give a bit of a you know, what, do, like what happens in metaverse fashion week? Like, is it like just an avatar of myself watching runway shows mimicking kind of like fashion week of, you know, what we understand it to be like, what does that look like in that new environment? Absolutely. And I totally recognize that this was your question from two questions ago. Oh my I gosh. Don't even totally worry about it. Edited and went in a different direction, but uh, yeah, metaverse fashion week, I think when we originally thought about it, um, we were again thinking conceptually because it had never really been done before. Um, before metaverse fashion week happened, my perception of a virtual fashion show was what I had done a year or two previously with Fashion Art Toronto, you know, a digital fashion week, like we're going to film runway shows and they're going to be presented on YouTube. That's digital, right? Like that was digital fashion to me then, you know, like what in 2019, 2018, whatever that were 2020 even. Um, once we started thinking about things in a game world, like in a virtual world like that, um, I think we had a lot of great learning lessons. I think what, what Metaverse Fashion Week looks like now versus this next year is very different from what it looked like in its first iteration. Um, what we already knew in its first iteration that we wanted um, was we would love to perpetuate this idea of runway shows um, into the digital realm. We did do that. We've done it successfully. Um, we have a lot of learnings of which examples of that are successful, which ones are less successful. Um, but the cool thing about having control over what a brand portrays or what a brand chooses to present is that in a virtual world, there's no limitations. Um, reality isn't even a limitation. So you can actually do anything. So the first Metaverse Fashion Week, for instance, just in this realm of fashion shows, um, we saw things like um, brands like Dundas, uh, Peter Dundas, an LA-based designer, he's global, it's amazing. Um, he chose to have his models, when they reach the center of the runway, um, kind of do a spin and then float in the air for like 20 seconds and like fly for a second. And then they came down, down to earth and they continued their walk. Like, that's not possible in the real world. Very cool in the metaverse. Um, and, you know, so uh, Indulce and Gabbana decided that their models were going to be cats because they had cats on their clothing from that season. So they made all these avatars with cat heads and they had cats going down the runway. Okay, why not? We're in the metaverse. Um, and then, you know, uh, Philip Plain had, um, you know, this massive skull because he loves these skulls and it, and it would open and close. And each time it opened and closed, a different model would come out and would walk down the skull's tongue. Like, you know, crazy things that would be, impossible in the real world, but are absolutely viable in the metaverse. And it's Because you can do anything in the metaverse. If you can think it, you can do it. Um, if you have the budget, you can produce it, you can do it. <laughs> um, and so the, we saw these types of things happen. And, and I thought that was really exciting. Um, but then we also um, immediately from the first event started going beyond that. You know, what does a metaverse fashion week look like? What, how do we interact with fashion? Um, in a digital environment, we have to have e-commerce experiences, you know, we have to have immersive experiences, we have to have art experiences, we, you know, we did panels, and we had conversations such as this one, you know, and we would present those in the metaverse and have, uh, you know, viewing places where people could see uh, real people and avatars having conversations like this. Um, we brought some incredible people, we had a uh, Nick Knight and Show Studio did a, a film festival in the metaverse, and he's reprised that now and, you know, brought um, fashion film and a lot of digital fashion that he's worked on. Um, into the digital realm. And that was a pleasure. Nick's, Nick's an incredible, incredible creator. Um, and yeah, so it, we, we started going through all these different iterations of what does this look like? Um, one of the brands even brought, they did a collaboration with Grimes, the musical artist, and they they decided to make a digital version of her who would do a concert and dance 
while they presented their collection as uh, buyable retail pieces. And some of the brands even chose to integrate pieces where you could go up to a digital item in the metaverse, click on it, put in your ship, uh, buy it, put in your shipping information and order it to your house as a real product. So I, re- I bought 10 items, which I received as real products, as well as digital products that I could wear on my avatar to my house. You know, I, I wore some of them. I had a bathing suit that I wore to the beach. You know, it's a, yeah. What I, a cool I, pop-up I, concept, right? Like it's just another pop-up yeah. iteration. Exactly. Really. And, but I, so I think that's like really where, where our minds were at when we started bringing this event together. I think what we're moving towards now in the future, because this is a little bit more conceptual, you know, we're in fall of uh, 23. Now we're looking at the next event. It's going to be in March of 24. Um, I think what we're looking towards is really starting to bring even more of that immersivity. I think our biggest learnings are, you know, while runway shows, um, immersivity and accessibility, I'd say are the two biggest learnings that we got out of this whole um, equation. Because um, in, in real life, you know, you go to a fashion show, it's very exclusive. Um, you know, it's a coveted thing to sit front row. You know, there's, there's this exclusivity aspect. It's only going to be live for 10 minutes. It's one time and it's one day. Catch the live stream or you don't get it live. It's not the same experience. Like there's this, there's this huge ex- exclusivity idea. hundred um, percent. And the first time we did it, we very much tried to remove that. I mean, there was even a slogan we were throwing around. It's like, everybody can come to fashion week, like, you know, no matter what. Um, and I think it's really interesting because the first time we did it, we did like 15 minute runways or 20 minute runways and you have to show up at the right time, but anybody could come. Um, and we saw a lot of people loved it. A lot of people really loved it. Um, but a lot of people, you know, when we're doing, uh, uh, a fashion event that isn't localized, which generally speaking is not done. Um, it presents a lot of issues because, you know, we are working across every time zone. Uh, we had an audience, almost just as big of an audience from Japan as we had in the United States, for instance, you know, at the first metaverse fashion week. So, um, we really have to start considering that. So I think one of the biggest changes that we started implementing last year, but are definitely fully implementing this year is every event is going to be a loop. Um, it's going to be a replicable event or it's going to be an immersive event um, or a gamified event so that people can go and they can experience it at any point in time um, and get the same type of experience. And I think that's one of the really core differentiators um, that we're pushing this year. Um, another really big thing that we're pushing this year is because of this future that I'm uh, prefacing and that I'm uh, not predicting, but that I'm really you know anticipating, um, I'm really encouraging, we are really encouraging brands um, to present in multiple contexts. So the first two Metaverse Fashion Weeks, there was a curatorial theme. Um, Coming back in now, I've done away with the term of curator. I don't think there should be a curator of a fashion event. Um, I'm creating a fashion council of of various fashion designers who are going to help with the administration of the event in terms of like, can somebody apply? Can they get in, et cetera? Um, But ultimately, the real goal uh, will be to um, ask brands, instead of to uh, present a collection under a curatorial theme, we'll be asking brands to present a collection in more than one context. So... Are they currently, I don't know, Balenciaga has a, um, these are not people who are confirmed, by the way. I don't want to like start any loss. Yes, hypothetically, uh, hypothetically. hypothetically. Yes. Um, Balenciaga has a game in Fortnite. I would love for them to take that game in Fortnite and bring it into Snapchat and do an activation in AR. Um, you know, Gucci has an activation in the Sandbox, this Web3 game. Why don't they reactivate their, you know, Sandbox application? And why don't they do an activation in their stores where people can, you know, experience this? I really want to help brands and consumers understand the bridging of these different worlds. Because I think that's going to be one of the most important things. So there's a lot of other things I can mention. We're going to have virtual press rooms. We're going to be, you know, we're, we're trying to have more of these retail experiences. We want more of these types of interactive things. We're creating partnerships with various apps that will allow people to log in with their accounts on existing websites so that if they own something from a brand, they can get into some exclusive backstage. Like we're really trying to add to the immersivity of the event, allow people to bridge assets between different worlds, really push this like Web3 ethos. There's a lot of things that we're pushing for next year. But I think on a high level, 
what you can expect when you when you uh, attend, hopefully, Metaverse Fashion Week 2024. Um, and we'll put a link below if people yeah. want to like figure out like where to follow and stay on top of things. That'll be linked so people can attend Metaverse. Uh, that's that'll be right there. Amazing, but yeah, if, if you're attending the event, I think what you can expect is you know an immersive event and you know and and an event that meets you wherever you currently are. You know, do you like Snapchat? Do you like AR filters? There should be something for you. Uh, but then if you want to take that a step further and you want to see what those filters might look like on your avatar in a game world, uh, even a game that you hopefully already play, um, we want to make that experience available for people um, and more accept more accessible for more people. And let's flip it for a sec, David, because I know as we record this, you're getting ready to hit the fall fashion weeks globally. What are you expecting to see, or or maybe you're not expecting to see to see any of this, and you can just say, Donna, move it along. But what from your lens of these, you know, Web3 new technology, what are you hoping to see? at these like in-person events that sort of help the the communication go both ways between what's happening, you know, in web three and what's happening in the real world? A hundred percent. I think that's a great question. Um, I think one of the big things that I like to personally champion um, with all of the brands that I work of work with all the brands that I work with um, it's a little bit self-centered because it's what I do. Um, but it's, it's innovation in fashion. We're an innovation agency, but ultimately I, I really do love seeing examples of innovation in fashion. This can be an example of an implementation of web three tech or not. It really doesn't bother me, whatever the case is. Um, but I love seeing brands trying to push the, the, the boundaries a little bit, like one step further. Um, so I do, I do expect to see some, um, examples of this, um, this fall, I mean, as soon as next week, I mean, I'm going to be in, uh, I know we're, this is going to release a little bit later, but I'm going to be in New York next week. Um, I know that, for instance, uh, Ralph Lauren, um, they recently released a, a virtual uh, storefront where you can move through a digital storefront. It's done in a similar style to that uh, website that Drake put out of his house, where it's kind of like a pseudo metaverse experience. And, and I think that's great because that's a great uh bridge <laughs> between the two yeah. and that's perfect so allowing somebody to go through the same retail experience as they as they would but in a more immersive way i think that's moving in the right direction so um, i think we're going to see more brands do things like integrating ar mirrors into their storefronts or their flagship storefronts um integrating a digital takeaway in the gift bag like a little qr code or something to tap that you bring some aspect home with you um i think we're already seeing and we're going to see a whole lot more of those types of integrations already at fashion weeks now um but i think the one thing i will say and also if any brands listen to this who do show these uh, weeks, I do think there is still a little bit of fear from a lot of brands to try to like really push the needle in this respect. They'd rather do like a publicity stunt um, just because they often the, the fear is that they're going to do something wrong, <laughs> that it's not going to go right. There's going to be some tech glitch. Um, and I do encourage designers to try to push the boundaries in this in this regard, because um, there really are some very accessible technologies available now. And the people who are evangelizing these technologies and really pushing like the companies we work with um, are really, really open to collaborating with uh, traditional fashion designers on trying to push the boundaries. Like if you, if you look at um, any fashion week calendar, you'll see at least one or two uh, where there's some obvious digital integration. And, uh, and, and I usually find that it's very cool and very well received. So. Um, well, and I love that you are talking about a really like a wide breadth of what digital technologies are like this isn't just about you know as I, if i put my hat on as i'm a fashion designer here in toronto and i'm thinking what can i do it's not just about um putting up a virtual fitting room although i think that is a space that you know as soon as that gets nailed well because i think it's something that sounds so good conceptually but it just hasn't it hasn't been sticky enough with the consumer for it to work really well, but it well, should be a slam dunk. Reality headset where you can drag and drop a virtual mirror right in front of you, and it could be a huge mirror. You could look at yourself perfectly. You can somehow see a great reflection of you. It's like 
perfect to the centimeter in terms of the fit on your body. Once that's available, maybe you even have an AI uh, stylist assistant who's sitting next to you giving you advice based on your past purchases. Like once that reality is possible, which I, again, think will happen in the next two years. That feels close to me. Um, like that feels and, close. And that's more accessible for people because I also think, you know, I know we're, we've, we've chatted for a moment, but uh, I think when we're, when we're going back to this hyper-modernity idea, um, a lot of people are scared of this idea of, oh, my kids are going to get lost in this game world. Like, I don't like seeing my kids spending all of their time on their computer. I don't like spending all my, all my time on my computer. I don't. I actually don't like spending all my time on my computer. Um, but I think what we're working towards, the reality that we're currently in is transitory because these devices are what we have right now in the next very couple years, next two to five years, the devices that we're going to be um, interacting with are not going to be uh, taking us out of reality. They're going to be enhancing reality. So I think that's the biggest uh, shift that we have to start working towards. And and also it's a it's an element of fear. I think it's a lot less scary when we start thinking of all these digital aspects as accentuations of our existing lives instead of distractions or um, ways to escape uh, from our lives. I don't want that, you know, uh, matrix future where we're all, you know, stuck in the vat, you know, <laughs> yeah. completely hidden from society. I want uh, the real world to be accentuated through these uh, technologies. But Oh, preach, I, I David Cash. <laughs> preach, preach, preach. So I could I could talk to you all the day long, but I'm going to ask you two final questions as we get ready to to wrap up this particular episode that we're doing together. The first is for fashion designers who are maybe like that small to mid-size one thing that they could be doing to think more innovatively, think bigger, expand their concept of what they could be doing with their business for the future. And second, who is inspiring you? Like when you look through the landscape of your business, who do you go, oh, snap, like they've got it going on? Very, very good questions. Um, I'd say in terms of like one touch point for every designer to do, I would say take a moment. And I'm, I'm, this is off the, off the cuff. So if it sounds good, amazing. Um, I would ask every designer to take a moment and write down every way that you currently portray your brand in a digital context. Um, because first of all, I think it'll really surprise you when you ask. This is an excellent exercise. And once you've done that, really think about, am I doing the best job that I possibly could of portraying my brand in an authentic way? If each of these sites was a showroom that I set up at a fashion week. Would I be proud of what I'm putting out in each of these contexts? Um, and not to say that anybody's doing a bad job, but when you really think about it as like, is this how I want to be perceived, period? Not just like, is this the best that I can do on Wix.com? I think you're really going to start rethinking the way that you portray your work online. And that's when you can start having some of these thought processes or conversations like, oh, should I add an AR thing on my website? Like, without making it more exciting? Like, how are people getting to my website? Why are they going there? Are they buying anything when they go there? Why? Why not? Could I help them get to that conclusion? Like really start thinking about the UI UX of what you have going on digitally and then go from there. And um, on a creative side, I'd say one thing I, that was fun for me to start experimenting with um, once I started moving more into the 3D digital realm, because I used to be a photographer and I used to make videos and I think I came from a very traditional realm. Um, I started messing around with what I call the in-between, which is 3D scanning. So Take a photo that you did and manipulate it on an actual like flatbed scanner. Um, take your iPhone and download 20 free 3D scan apps and scan the model that you're working with. It'll look gross. It'll look terrible half the time if you're not paying for it. But at least it's like starting to make you think about spatial awareness and and how do I, you know, create in a 3D environment and how do these objects interact with each other? That's like the first thing that I would do. 
Um, and then in terms of who inspires me, this is always difficult because I'm one of the people who loves crossing contexts, as you can probably tell. Um, so I love pulling from like weird disparate sources. Um, I will say my number one favorite person when it comes to like crazy environments and just reference points. Um, I don't know if I mentioned them in this call, but it's Alexandre de Betac, uh, the famous, uh, French set designer, set decorator. Um, he's incredible. He's somebody who's created worlds and I've interviewed him before actually, but he's somebody who's created worlds, um, that are out of this world, but in the real world. So uh, always very inspired by what he did, what he's done. And then anybody else who's in that respect, I won't, I won't go into a million names, but anybody else who creates like weird space age, age uh, visions of the future, um, you know, Alberto Giacometti, uh, Pierre Cardin, like these types of people who really try to envision, uh, uh, Stephen, uh, Stanley Kubrick, like whoever tries to envision what the future looks like, I'm always very in inspired by, because I actually think that not enough people today try to actually envision what our future looks like. And that's sad. Oh my gosh, David Cash, I could talk to you all day. Thank you so much for being here. People who want to like follow along, reach out, where are the best places for them to find you? We'll link them in the show notes, but tell the people where to find you. Absolutely. It's been such a pleasure, Donna. Um, you can find me on pretty much all social media at davidcash888. Um, that's my Instagram, Twitter, et cetera. Um, and you can find more about Cash Labs at cashlabs.io. And we have Metaverse Fashion Week and all that linked in there, so you can find it through there. But also just Google MVFW, hopefully you'll find it. Amazing. David, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. Such a pleasure. Thanks again, Donna. Thank you so much for joining me here on Fashion Talks. If you enjoyed today's episode, please share it with your friends, your family, on your networks. It would mean the world to me. Fashion Talks is done in partnership with the Canadian Arts and Fashion Awards. You can find out more about them at CAFA Awards, C-A-F-A-W-A-R-D-S on Instagram. This episode was produced by Jason Perrier. You can find him on Instagram at a Jason Perrier. You can follow the pod at Fashion Talks Pod, and you can follow me at This Is Donna B. All of us on Instagram. I hope you will join us again next week. Thank you so much and have a great day. Mm -hmm.